You're listening to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Chris Farnbach about what we still carry, also known as small t traumatizations. It's definitely a thought-provoking conversation as it makes us think about self-compassion, healing what hurts us, to ultimately improve our quality of living. What if the truth has always been, we are all worthy of a beautiful life? Life can be stressful for all of us, but for people who have had trauma in their past and carry their trauma or remnants of it, including the stress from every day, Elevated stress levels are more common in this population. The two main categories of trauma are commonly referred to as big T and small T traumatizations. While big T traumas are commonly associated with PTSD and can be seen as life-threatening experiences, small T traumas, while also painful and troubling, include but are not limited to bullying, emotional abuse, difficult relationships, or loss of a pet. During this interview, Dr. Farenbach brought up the idea of a safe place. I wondered what that was, so I looked it up. The imagery of an inner safe place is part of a body of work on stabilization techniques originated by Dr. Shapiro for trauma therapy to prepare clients for EMDR. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Safe place is a relaxation technique taught to a person preparing for EMDR as they learn to process their trauma. Some clinicians have renamed this safe place resource as the peaceful place, happy place, or calm place. And the main reason for the safe place is to teach and show the client that they can move from a painful to calm state, helping to regulate the emotion with healthy self-soothing before processing or making sense of the traumatic event in their lives that still continues to hurt them. It involves creating an image of a place that brings feelings of calm and safety and imagining the feelings and sensations of being in that safe place and the person is asked to think of a word that they connect to their safe place, and they can self-cue the image of their safe place and feelings associated with it when needed. The idea seems really cool to me, that there are survival tricks like this that exist if you train your mind and heart. When your heart is pounding, and if you feel afraid and there is no imminent danger, the idea of acknowledging these feelings to understand what you are feeling and that you can bring yourself to a place where everything is okay, where you are safe, where there is peace, where you can take shelter for however long you need so that you can gather yourself up 
to go out into the world again when you are ready? Who wouldn't benefit from these moments to compose oneself or to gather oneself when you feel thrown off? And perhaps the other issue is, it's okay to feel the way you feel. I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Christine Farnbach again about what we still carry. She's a clinical psychologist here in Santa Cruz, and she also has a graduate degree in theology. And well, I love our talks, as I think she's one of the most thoughtful and insightful people I've ever met. Welcome to Lost or Found, Dr. Chris Farnbach. It's so nice to see you again. Well, and great to see you too, Michelle. And today we're going to be talking about small T traumatizations. Can you describe to us what they are? Small T versus large T is not an official medical term. First of all, um, it is something that I think perhaps um, Bessel van der Kolk, who's an expert in a trauma research and treatment, um, he might have coined it, but it has arisen among um, professionals who, who treat and study trauma. So the large T trauma would be really dramatic things that actually are life-threatening, um, severe in nature, like you know anybody who was involved in the attack on the World Trade Center, they would have certainly been exposed to, that's a large T trauma event. Um, and then, um, you know, if you're in a car crash or you see a close person being killed, things like that. But small T traumatization is related more to um, exposure to debilitating or even not very debilitating, but very painful emotional climates, emotional situations. Um, so a small T trauma, for example, could be related to a kid who might be bullied in school. And so constantly they're being accosted by someone who is bullying them. They're not getting intervention. They develop fears. They feel a threat to their um, existence on a certain level, an assault to the self. Um, small T traumatization can occur to people who are in, say, environments um, in their homes that they grow up in. If they have one parent who's a yeller or a screamer, and you know it's really unpredictable how that's going to happen. I think people who grow up in homes where there's alcoholism, addiction, or some other kind of, um, even chronic illness. If there's a person in your family who everything revolves around or who runs the show, and as a child, you tend to be lost, you could be um, traumatized over time like that. And what you're in is you're in an ongoing um, climate of trauma. So you're internalizing devaluation and threat over the long haul, although someone looking in the window um, of your home might not see it the same way because they're not experiencing the oppression um, and the invasion and the intrusion. You know, you could also say large, like some anybody who's sexually abused, large T trauma, um, you know, things like that, or physically abused. Those things would, I, I think, be seen more as large T trauma. But many people are subject to this more a small T trauma, and that's a kind of, that's a lot of the people you see that I would see in practice. Um, you might have um, minor situations of PTSD or even major PTSD as a result. And their work lives, their relationships, their social lives, they can be very impaired. Do you think it typically happens in childhood, small T traumatizations? No, it, it can happen. I mean, someone could 
be in a work environment mm -hmm. in which they're constantly traumatized. Um, I think often I do see people like that who are in traumatizing work environments and everybody I see that trauma is nested in other things that have come up, but um, I don't think that's a rule. You know, I think you can be traumatized by work. So it could be kind of like thought of as like any situation that causes like belittling to the self or erosion oh, of the self. perfectly said. Yes. Belittling, belittling to the self. Do you need like the right environment to have that happen? I guess I mean like, you know, maybe one's like weaker social connections or even like a really, a person who's like firm in their selves could be vulnerable to it too. You know, that is not, I can't say that that's extremely clear. They don't know, like they've done a lot of studies, say, with war veterans who have PTSD and they can't find the personality structure that gives rise to a traumatized soldier, someone who comes back from war with PTSD. You know, common sense would say if you have a more resilient self, sense of self, you might not be affected by it, but that's not necessarily true. So, yeah, I think people who have strong personalities, um, can be affected by um, small t trauma. And there's a lot of, there's some variables too related to how can a person, like how how much agency do you have in the trauma? And the, or, the more agency you have, the more you can take action, the better your chances are. Um, there was that, uh, many years ago, there was um, this is a hideous crime where some guys, um, kidnapped children in a school bus in Chowchilla, California. And they drove the school bus to this dump and they buried it in the dump. And they were asking some huge ransom and, and so forth. And then they did a study on these. They buried what in the? The school bus with oh. like 40 or 50 kids, like 40 something kids on it, I mm -hmm. think. Um, and um, years later, they did a study on the children that were involved in this, that were traumatized in this situation. And it was those kids who, were trying to escape did much better in life than those who froze. So if you fight or if you flee, you have a better chance of recovering, especially fighting. Um, if you freeze, that's a little harder. That's really interesting because when I think about how you describe small t traumatizations, like, you know, sometimes bullying or even in the work environment, mm -hmm. those situations can go on for a really long time. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think most of us recognize it, but then many of us don't know what to do about it. But that helplessness that develops, mm -hmm. it's quite scary. Oh, yeah, I, it, I think it can be. I mean, you can see some of the most competent people in their work and they're really suffering inside from things that are residual from patterns they experienced, um, relational patterns they experienced as children. You know, I get a colleague, I, this was at a training, I trained in EMDR and uh, at the training, you know, we volunteered at the training to, you know, do our thing. And uh, one guy, very well-spoken man um, and good in his field, you know, well-accomplished. And he volunteered because he had this certain type of anxiety related to confidence because he was always the last picked for the playground baseball team or not picked at all. And so he's isolated and castigated. And um, please forgive me, I can't remember the particular issue he was um, concerned about, a certain type of anxiety. And so we worked it through and, 
you know, these specific memories came out into a pattern and they had a meaning for him. And the meaning was, I'm no good or I'm not acceptable. And then if you process a trauma, you can come up with a different meaning. Something like they didn't know what a good player I was, or there's another belief that can emerge out of that kind of trauma. Um, and that's an ongoing thing. So you can imagine that a child going to school would have a certain amount of dread yeah. being you know, attacked in some way or disregarded or not included. And I guess when stuff like that happens, you kind of add to the belief that you already have of yourself. Like for that patient that you described, it was, I'm no good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or I, I'm, I'm feeling isolated and not included. Yeah. Watching from the outside. And the belief is, you know, I'm not included. I'm, I'm, it's like the cheese stands alone in that terrible song, The Farmer and the Dell. Mm-hmm. If you remember that, it probably wasn't around when you were growing up. Oh, yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, isn't that a terrible <laughs> song? The cheese standing. I'm middle-aged. <laughs> okay, so he felt like the cheese, and, um, you know, he emerged from that process. This is actually a training exercise, you know, when we were training in this particular um, uh, intervention. Um, he felt that he could belong, that he wasn't the cheese. Um, but if you feel like you're the cheese, you know, or the the odd one out, you know, that can stick with you and become a deep belief and have a huge impact on you. Exactly. Feeling like the black sheep or the cheese. Yeah. Right. And then alternatively, maybe there's a reason why we feel like that. And maybe it's not entirely bad, you know? Well, I think a lot of good things can come out of, um, you know, if you can do the right kind of work, good things can come out of trauma, small T or large T, some people who are traumatized actually live with this condition for their entire lives. It's a condition that can ruin lives and ruin the lives of anybody who knows you um, if you are afflicted by post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, But yeah, good things can come out of it. But don't, you know, you know, stand in the middle of a freeway just to be traumatized so you can learn something. You could just ride the wave of life. Yeah, riding the wave of life is perfectly fine. You know, you don't get any points. I really like that example of the kids on the bus, you know, um, that you gave. Those kids who tried to escape did better in their lives. Yeah, they did. I think that's something for all of us to learn from. Mm -hmm. That, you know, stuff happens in our lives and we can't, like, we can't control what's going to hurt us or not, but if it continues to hurt you, you have the ability to stop it. Right. And a lot of that in highly traumatizing situations has to do with how your brain responds to the trauma. And that might be embedded in attachment things, like when you how you attach to your early caregivers as a child. Um, but yeah, some people will fight, some people will flee, and some people will fold up and play possum. Mm-hmm. So you're just... you're saying basically like if someone grew up in a situation where they have weaker social connections or maybe less empathy in their daily lives, they could do they could have more of a difficult time then. I think that's possible. But there's always the care the um the variable of resilience. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an expert on resilience, but it you know, it's it's a whole psychological um factor that is measured and um, recorded and applied to different research. Um, And so I would assume that resilience really will have an impact and resilience 
I'm not sure what it's tied to, that if you have to have a good situation, you'll be resilient. But I don't think that's always true because there are any number of people we know about in, in our lives and also through the media and everything that have had terrible situations. And I think that's the unpredictability card that yes, no one... exactly. That we all have access to, that resiliency, and then we, that we can pull out. But you don't know when it's going to happen, but that's a possibility for all of us. Well, if, you, if, you have, if you're strong in resilience, it's going to be more available to you. But now what I think as a, um, as a, a psychotherapist is that we can make choices to become more resilient. We can evolve in resilience. But it always relies on, I think it depends on how you manage where you're not safe, where you're not resilient. How can we make choices to become more resilient? Like, what can we do in our lives to invite that more of that in? I think, you know, uh, let me think of the things. The first thing that came to mind was very good self-care. And self-care is not to be confused with selfishness or self-indulgence. If you're not ready when you go out the door, you're not going to be able to help anybody else. So you have to be reasonably ready. And there are a lot of self-care things that we can do um, to take care of our brains, to calm and soothe ourselves. And we're all becoming more familiar with those things as, you know, yoga and uh, mindfulness for sure, meditation. Um, you know, there's any number of things for self-care on that level. Um, however you relax, getting a massage, being more engaged in terms of your senses. It's a very good kind of self-care because the more engaged with your senses, the more you will be in your body, which you know is, you know where you are, and then you have more choices. To feel grounded. To feel grounded. Perfect. Yes, exactly. So self-care like that. And then there's also the, you know, nutritional things and all that stuff that, you know, I'm not going to go into that mm -hmm. because that's, you know, pick your poison, what you think your panacea is there, but, you know, reasonably good <laughs> nutrition is, and of course, really important. And, you know, not drinking too much or using mm -hmm. too much of whatever you like. And, and maybe even like movement. Yeah. Oh, of course. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's so many good movement things. You know, anything from, well, in Santa Cruz, we have dance church, which is <laughs> free dancing to, um, a mix of music that someone puts together in a particular fluid way that really brings a great deal of joy and embodiment to a lot of people. But there's also other kinds of, you know, particular body work, like, well, from rolfing to um, um, the name of this technique, Rosen work, um, which is another type of body work, um, to um, entrainment. Uh, it's a chiropractic intervention that can be very helpful too in loosening up energy and helping be just helping you come home to yourself, which is really located in being in your body, not just in your brain. And the more we're in our brain, the more our left brain in particular, the more we will dissociate and not be able to manage what's coming at us. Mm -hmm. That fair balance. And I think we shouldn't underestimate even our social connections. Oh, absolutely. The fact that we're social animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess if you're a hermit, you would be okay with, you know, being in the mountains and meditating by yourself, you know. But even a hermit, typically, like, especially like a monk, brings in the light. Yeah. And I think the idea is to spread it to others. But for most of us, the majority of us, we are very social animals. Right. And there's um, 
there's normal introversion as well that goes along mm-hmm. with that and normal extroversion. And I mean, people who are more extroverted, you know, they need to speak in order to think. And people who are more introverted, they need to think about it first before they speak. And so an introverted person will probably have fewer social collapse, you know, connections than say someone who wants to invite 500 of their best friends to their party. That would be the more extroverted person. You know, with multi-traumatizations, I find it kind of fascinating because it could be like situations in your lives where you don't think it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it really turns out to have been a very big deal. Exactly. That is really well said. And many people who, actually, I can't, I've had very few people come to my practice to come and talk with me that are going on and on about how terrible their life was and how it's everybody's fault. More people are like, I don't know why this bothers me so much, or I don't know why I can't get over this, or I don't know why, you know, I have no control over this. Mm-hmm. That's really more what I what I see in my practice. And, you know, I think when you get through levels of people who are just blaming everybody else, it's really about how am I deficient? Why can't I deal with this? And in particular with things like, like just a good example is, um, I don't know if I'd call this small T traumatization, but I've seen a number of adults with ADD, ADHD, you know, attention deficit disorder, and also with um, learning disabilities that were not identified and managed, or the child was, the person as a child was not helped with these things. Um, And they had the most interesting, um, really painful deficits in their self-esteem. Because if you have ADHD, the world, like I'm thinking, especially when I was young in the 50s and 60s, is not built for you. You're not allowed to run around your classroom and, you know, go from t- topic to topic to topic. You know, it's and it's always very rigid about. And if you the people who really got in trouble mostly were boys because they didn't see this in girls as much because they were all over the place bouncing off of the walls. And they had a, a, a terrible time with, um, you know, sitting still. But there wasn't anything wrong with them. But you learn you learn pretty quickly. Oh, this is not approved of behavior. And so you. You keep a lot of stuff to yourself. Many people I've seen who have ADHD and some learning disabilities that were never um, noticed um, it feel like they're fakes. They fly be- below the radar and they also be- are slightly depressed about themselves. And they, in general, think it's all their fault. Of um, course. Yeah. Because no one gave it a name. which said, oh, you experienced the world this way. I mean, it's a lot to, for our culture to adjust. I mean... We have to have certain parameters and so forth, but for someone just to empathize and see it and not make that kid a creep or, you know, the bad kid in the class or, you know, something like that. I mean, like we know now, like, you know, ADHD, um, you know, learning disabilities, these are legitimate issues and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're learning more how to address it, help, Mm -hmm. you know, people with these issues. But I think when you grow up, and you feel ostracized, or if you feel like you're that that odd one out, those legitimate issues take on all these emotions, mm-hmm. and you're wrapping it in all these negative emotions that really shouldn't have been there. But unfortunately, that was the environment that maybe society created. Right, and also if you're someone who doesn't have ADD and you are, live with someone with ADD, or you're teaching a class with maybe three kids with that it's really hard for that person too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, I think that, you know, truth is always a really important um, aspect of self-care. And I mean that in the sense of like naming, 
you're not bad. You have this, but you really can't do these things because you have this. Let's find a, an alternative for you. But this is a condition you have. It's, I mean, telling the truth about everything is, is helpful. Yeah. It clears up so many doubts and in particular self-doubt when someone finally names something for you. It's kind of hard when like society describes to us what normal should be when, mm-hmm. you know, normal is a terrible term. <laughs> right. Well, it's statistically helpful, but that's about yeah. it. Um, and you can do a lot with that information, but there's, I, I like to think of a typical is a um, different word for normal, which it more implies, you know, typically people do this, but there's a lot of people who don't, as opposed to normal is good, abnormal is bad. Exactly. Which that, I think that's what's conveyed. Typical seems more accurate. Yeah. And it doesn't really convey all these, like, emotions. Right. That you're not included. Right. You know? Exactly. And people who have difficulties, they're very typical in other ways. And also people have difficulties. It's really important to learn as a person with difficulties that, you know, other people have this too. I just have it bigger. You know, so you don't feel so isolated, which is true about so many things. Exactly. And I think sometimes when things like this happen, you know, for many of us, it's like during a really vulnerable period in our times when we don't understand that people can act not nice or that, you know, or the idea of like boundaries. Like I didn't know that until I didn't know about what boundaries were until like age 36, mm-hmm. you know, where we don't have the tools yet we experience it. Mm-hmm. Then we carry it for a really long time or for most of our lives. Oh, absolutely. And you know, you're not asking me this question about boundaries, but I see that quite a lot about poor boundaries that where the people let other people encroach on their sense of self by yeah. what they're requesting and what they're requiring. And most people seem to think that boundaries are controlling the other person, but it's really setting the limit in yourself. Hey, I'm not crossing this bridge with you. This is as far as I can go. Or I don't do that. You go ahead, but does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Or the ability, like the, you know, the survivors on that school trip, I mean, that bus trip, you know, mm-hmm. the ability to say no could right. be really empowering. And then the question becomes, how do you say no? But this is you know? absolutely right. You're absolutely correct about that. I love the way you put that. Yeah, it's saying no, which is protest, which is rooted in what anger, anger really is. It's no don't do that to me. And so every kid who's trying to push the emergency exit out or break windows in that bus to get out, we're saying, no, this is not going to happen. And it's a very powerful place to be in. Many people are not um, allowed to say no or taught to say no. No. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is like when I was young, my parents used to fight a lot, you know? And one of the things that I never really understood why I never did this was I didn't understand why I never yelled out. Why I never let them know that that it was hurting me. Like just to say, stop or no, you know, it's just like that was something that I never understood for a long time. I never screamed it out. Well, would you have been able to? Then no. <laughs> Absolutely not. I learned to go within. Like, mm-hmm. I was one of the kids on the bus that didn't say anything or didn't try to get out, probably. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I just lost a brilliant thought. Sorry. Uh, about that. Um, yeah. Saying no is the boundary. And, um, you know, I know it's so many people that are diminished by just never learning to say they have a right to say, Hey, no, that's <laughs> you're crossing my boundary here and it's not okay. Do you think we can make up for it? Like for those of us who didn't say no in our, in our younger lives, can we make up for it in our later lives? Oh, absolutely. Learning that is, is really important. Um, I actually, the thing I thought of was you were talking about that example um, of your own childhood and that you couldn't say no. That is the part that we have to most empathize with. And that's the part we want to criticize the most. Why didn't I do anything? Well, then you realize, well, I was a small child. I couldn't. But it's hard. That's very hard for people to accept. Yeah. That it wasn't their fault. But um, that was the truth, you know? Well, the yeah. truth is, yeah. You I'm, were a small child. Right. Well, it is very typical for people who have been molested or um, um, uh, physically abused um, or even emotionally abused extensively. And they, they can go through all the memory. They can talk through it, blah, blah, blah. And there's a hidden belief that they're not usually aware of, which is I should have done something different. Um, I should have been able to stop that. I failed. And um, the process of working through the trauma and even using things like cognitive processing or EMDR, people have that belief. It was my fault, which is why they're still struggling with guilt and shame as adults. And then through processing the trauma, you can get to the point where it's like, oh, I was just a small child. I couldn't have done anything. And we're caught in these beliefs. Um, and I think essential to, as your question, can we learn to say no as adults? There's a dual process of getting out of the belief that it was my fault because I didn't say no. And I've got to take every self-defense class known to humanity in order to learn to say no when it's really in, uh, also a process of learning to have deep empathy for the small child you once were that in no way would have ever been able to say no. Yeah, and I think many of us, maybe the truth is we still carry that small child. Oh, we absolutely do. Like, even though that small child's grown up, that child is still a part of us. Well, exactly. We have, um, uh, we have every, uh, you know, we are the sum total in our brain and in our body of everything that's ever happened to us, everything that we've processed. Although a lot of it is unconscious, of course, you know, we wouldn't, we don't need everything. But we have, do, we do have young aspects of ourselves um, called, part objects that can become what they also call ego states. And so we have a young self. And I don't like to think in terms of inner child because it um, it's almost like, oh, let me get my inner child out. <laughs> I'll bring her on. But when you think in terms of your young self, you can often imaginatively get a, an, a, an image of a child that you once were. And um, you can actually build a bridge to that part of your feeling self um, which is stored in memory and walk a different path as a result of reconciling with all the blame and shame that you carry. Um, so I had a point to add to that. Um, oh, about the parts of ourselves. Oh, so what gets activated and we're triggered. Let's say someone was terribly abused um, when they were a small child. Um, or this is an easier one is a small child might have had a bad encounter with a teacher or a police officer or someone in authority. And they're always triggered in 
authority situations. And I know someone, actually, I worked with someone who had this difficulty, just would be absolutely terrified of being stopped by the police. And then absolutely scream and yell and resist and Mm-hmm. and so forth because of experiences. When the had, approach happened. Yes. They had experiences that in the context of their life, well, it, you could see why there might have been police inf- intervention um, mm-hmm. had to do with the juvenile stuff, but it still is inappropriate. Um, and so then she gets into what they call the ego state where you're triggered and then suddenly you are that child or that teenager screaming at the cop or um, a that child cowering in the corner when your boss it didn't smile at you in the morning or offered a correction to you. So um, it's quite a loop that that goes on. But as far as make learning to say no, I think it's developing skills. But you have to really grow to deeply empathize with yourself. Um, and, and maybe it takes time to say no. Yeah, you know, like maybe we need to gain that skill set to even learn what that word really means. Wow, what a good point. Absolutely. <laughs> so what does that, can I ask you, what does no mean to you? Well, I think for me, like, I had to recognize <clears throat> the situation mm-hmm. that I was a child, mm-hmm. that there were adults in the room, mm-hmm. and I was a child. And knowing that, like, I was really hurting and I was still carrying that hurt, but I could control what my future is. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the time was spent understanding that past situation. There's yes. an element of forgiving yourself. Right. There's an element of learning healthy, healthy activities mm-hmm. to allow yourself to feel better, you know, mm-hmm. or give you moments where you feel better. Mm-hmm. And create better social connections. Right. You yeah, know? there's also it was interesting about no, because I don't know if you remember, um, it was kind of, everybody laughed about it, but, you know, Nancy Reagan, first lady, when Ronald Reagan was president, she had this drug thing and it was Nancy Reagan's just say no campaign. So just say no to drugs. I remember that. Basically. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody joked about it first as if it would be so simple to just say no, given the plight of the, you know, the D's, you know, what the disease of addiction does create in a person's life. So um, I think assertiveness training courses and some self-defense courses can say, just say no. And they won't be effective because in the left brain, Mm -hmm. you can't do that unless you bring the whole brain on to get the um, emotional heft and confidence behind that. Um, And so learning to say no is, as you said, so nicely is to have compassion for that part of yourself. And let that part of ourselves tell the terrible story of what happened and without blaming them and saying, oh, yeah. So, you know, no comes from your instincts. And sometimes I love what you said. And I think sometimes when you just say it, Mm -hmm. you can figure out what it means later. (laughs) If you keep on saying it, you'll think about it, I assure you. Mm -hmm. You know, just saying no, Mm -hmm. and then you'll think about, how you feel in those moments when you say no mm-hmm. and maybe it'll be empowering but sometimes i t- think it takes a lot of time to figure out what that meant exactly this change is not so easy to make because it is so in our bodies to be uh, to be a child who had to cower when the raging parent came home or 
abusive babysitter or whatever the ha- whatever it happened to be, you're cowering. And what you're when you first say no, you're going, no, no. And you're like, no. And then, because uh, that's your kid still trying to say no. So you need the functional adult part of yourself to bring that child along and say, hey, I'm, I've got this. I'll say no now. You don't have to, because that wasn't your job. Exactly. And, you know, even from my experience, having a narcissistic parent, mm-hmm. you know, when you say no, <laughs> I never realized this, but when you say no, you can stop the abuse. Mm-hmm. And then what happened was, I started to learn what self-love was. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, if I couldn't find that love in my situation, mm-hmm. you create it. Wow. How did you do How do you think you learned that? I read a lot of books. I should have probably gone to counseling. It would have been quicker. But <laughs> <laughs> so with medical helped. school, it was hard. I read a lot of books. Uh, I really, really did. And it started this journey. Mm-hmm. My love of the self-help book. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a, a young friend. She is, um, I think, 11 now. And I became friends with her. She's across the street neighbor. And uh, she was, everybody thought, probably going to be autistic. But I think she just lost her voice. And so I started hanging out with her at the, these little gatherings she'd had when the, the adults and the other kids are playing over here and all she wanted to do was swing on the swing. And so we evolved this friendship and um, she's not on the spectrum. She's a, a brilliant, uh, a brilliant girl. And, um, but what she's learned and she learned it in school because I think they're starting to teach some tools for emotional intelligence. And she says, you know, and she's criticized a lot in the family. It seems like she's the middle kid. So it's always her fault in a certain mm-hmm. benign way. And, um, so she told me, she you know, I have a happy place. And if it feels terrible, I just go there. And so she has a place. And I think they teach the happy place, but she uses it in her imagination in a full-brained way. And I think it has really helped her. Did she ever describe to you what the happy place looks like? You know, I do not know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. I could ask her. But it's something so safe for her that she knows she can go into. Yeah, what's, when she imagines it, it's soothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like meditation for the adults in a way. Yeah, well, you know, when in EMDR, you always develop an internal safe place. And so you mm-hmm. can always go there and it can be very highly charged in a soothing way. Versus the flashbacks that are really awful mm-hmm. in a non-soothing way. May I ask you, and I mean, it could just be, <laughs> I, mean, I realize it could be assumptions, but why do you think she lost her voice? Uh, I think one of her parents abandoned her. Mm-hmm. There was a divorce in the family and, um, or before even that happened, um, uh, the parent just didn't want her and wanted the older kid, but the marriage is falling apart as the younger child was, um, in utero and just wanted nothing to do with her. Mm-hmm. And I think children can know those things. Yeah. That sounds like a really reasonable reason yeah. to have lost one's voice. Yeah, so she just went inside. Yeah. Yeah, we were very happy. And oh, speech therapy helped too. It could be other, mm-hmm. you know, cognitive delays and things like that. But there's, you know, she's not on any spectrum um, at all or, yeah, you know, cognitively um, impaired in any way. So I think it was a psychological retreat. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. 
that's a hypothesis. I, you know, yeah. I couldn't say for sure, but that's how I would frame that situation. Yeah, because you live with the memory of it, and God knows what happened in utero with the mother feeling so much stress. Yeah. But you you live with that memory, even as an 11-year-old, knowing the facts. Well, right. But that your experience of it might be split off from mm-hmm. your awareness. But I we learn before, well before we're, bur- we're born. Yeah. We hear soothing tones or not soothing tones. We feel comforted or we feel disrupted. Um, say if a, a childbearing woman is repeatedly abused, attacked. I mean, that's not going to be good for a baby. Yeah. Neurological development. Yes, they're taking Mm -hmm. it all in. Yeah. Thank you for that book recommendation, Buddha's Brain. Oh, yes. That's a great book. I really loved it. And, you know, Hansen and Mendius, they talk about how there's a negativity bias of the brain. Yes. How even if there's more positive experiences than negative, that the brain prefers to hold on to the negative experiences. And it almost has to be an active effort for the brain to take in and absorb the positive experiences. That's true. And the explanation that I've heard, and it makes perfect sense, and many people will say this, they might have even said that in that book, but we're programmed to survive. So in terms of um, you know our evolution, of course, the species has to survive in order to continue. And um, so you can imagine all the danger that, you know, surrounded human beings over many, many years. And so we are programmed to look for the negative in order to be safe. To run away. To run away. And the more you look for the negative, the more it gets reinforced. And so because we need to be safe, we're going to see more negative and not, and register it in a different way. We're not going to see as much of the positive and register um, and register it. Like, in fact, um, Hansen um, has a practice that he calls um, taking in the good. And that when you notice something, you feel good about something, it's like, stop for it. You know, you know I break for this. Yeah, break, definitely break for a good feeling. <laughs> and, a, and just sit it, let it soak into your body. And then maybe even imagine it and bring it into your heart because your heart will register it because the heart brain and gut are all connected. So your body will take in this feeling. And then what you're doing is you're just telling your brain, yeah, good, good stuff happens too. Um, and people who are, um, I mean, all of us really, we do focus on that because it's so, um, absolutely important to survive. And so we've learned Mm -hmm. to do that. And evolutionarily speaking, it is not as necessary as it used to be Yeah, because there is not a saber toothed tiger, you know, walking back and forth in front of your house that you have (laughs) have to get past to get to the car. So, um, you know, those things aren't happening. But the pain, the the fear is, it's really intense because it's all very connected with um, our cortical, our nervous system and cortical hormones and all this stuff. And it has to hurt for us to notice it. So stuff that feels good doesn't draw us as much. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you're, I would like to think that there's less physical danger. Like you're not being chased by an animal. Dogs are on the leash, mm-hmm. you know. But if that's the evolutionary aspect of our brain, you know, we really do have to think about the positives. Or how many times does someone say, you are so smart? And we always say, oh, no, no, no. 
yeah. think if someone tells you you are so smart, maybe we all have to take a moment and be like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I am smart. Or yeah. like say it 10 times, you know? Right. Instead of shrugging it off. But we remember when we're slighted. Right. Well, when I was young, if you did that, you were conceited, which was, <laughs> you know, in you know elementary school, the worst thing you could be. Because that always, of course, leads to selfishness, <laughs> which is also bad in a certain way. Um, but, you know, it's interesting is that um, the, the afraid brain also continues to create fear. And so it's it, in a way we have more information a lot about a lot of things about, you know, child abduction and all these things that we've come very afraid of. And um, say, for example, child abduction is not happening any more often than it ever did percentage wise, but we think it's everywhere. And then ultimately that kind of fear will leads to conspiracy theories because then we want to have an explanation for the fear. And it doesn't matter if it's true or not. If we have an explanation, we feel better because we want it to be predictable. That seems so poignant in our society now. Oh yeah. How yes. do we how do we approach and recognize the truth and accept the truth and go from there? Like what can we do to really accept the truth? Where do you think it's coming from? With well, so many sources. I I I think, um, you know, if I think on a macro level, there's the belief in scarcity, which is not really true. There's a, there's a problem with distribution. Um, so there's on a macro level, there's societies getting larger and larger and larger and an optimal size of a group to be functional is 50. And we're way past that, obviously, in our cities and even in our small towns even. That number could be off. It could be a few more than that. But mm-hmm. um, so there's that kind of thing. There's, of course, social media, which does that thing I'm talking about, about pumping all this frightening information. And there's a point when people get, I think there's a line that that one crosses where knowing the worst possible outcome is very, very soothing and comforting and being sure of it. And so it's hard to let go of that belief, like the things that are coming up politically the lie about the election. Mm-hmm. And and then these cr- stories that, I mean, I think most people would would question, find questionable in some conspir- current conspiracy theories. But that makes people feel safe in a really bizarre way. But I think being aware of our negativity bias, mm-hmm. maybe we all need to make more active effort to let in the good. Oh, absolutely. This is information that should be taught in the school. Yeah. Every school, wherever you are. It's like, um, they're doing it some in Santa Cruz. Like, children are learning um, some of these self-soothing exercises that they have a lot of fun with and um, and so forth. But, um, and you, I don't think you have to shift your political b- beliefs, but political beliefs are not related to reality, <laughs> really, in... Um, as far as I can tell, or enough to reality. And so I think there's some movements in psychology, like the positive psychology movement. And I think we're moving to a stage where thinking is becoming less reductive. Although I think there's a backlash of reductive thinking. Um, But I think there are a lot of people that are thinking in a more inclusive, expansive way, which gives you more options and better access to the truth because it includes more information and more possibilities. 
And I, th- I kind of wonder, also thinking about certain words, mm-hmm. you know, like we brought up empathy, mm-hmm. compassion, that we're all united by, like, mm-hmm. we are all one in our suffering. Absolutely, yeah. You know, or even the idea of virtue. Mm-hmm. And virtue simply means living from your innate goodness. To right. recognize that it exists. Absolutely. Your innate goodness. Yeah, that's really nicely said. Yeah, I think the end point of good a healing process, whether it's psychotherapy or addiction treatment or mm-hmm. even medical treatment is, yeah, medical treatment for sure. Um, and healing is compassion. Because when you go into your own suffering and take it on, you have to become compassionate towards yourself. And so in the end, you will be compassionate towards other people. No matter what stupid thing they're saying, or it, quote in quotes, they're mm-hmm. saying, you're like, Oh, yeah. No, no, but you, you're you. Yeah. You know, and that's, of course, that's what we're called to, like all the great faiths and philosophies say that. And how many of us, I would imagine the majority of us are carrying something from our past. Every, I think everybody is. You know, it could be something different, but we all are. Right. You know? Yeah. And the Hanson and Mendius say this, but they say, when you are virtuous, no matter what other people do, their behavior is not controlling you to exactly. recognize that. Yes. That's the boundary right there. That is kind of a, a a very interesting way of saying what no means, which is, no, I'm not going there. I'm staying with who I am, with truth. Yeah. As I'm evolving to know it on even, deep, even deeper and deeper levels. You know, you brought up the idea of visualizations, but if you think about boundaries, you know, and sometimes I thought about this more like in the primary care setting because everyone's ready to kind of like dump what's happening in their lives on you in a matter of a couple of minutes sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and then like I absorb it or we all absorb it like a sponge. Right. Right. Yes. You take it in. You take on someone's suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, I think we can only help someone with their suffering if we take care of ourselves and we have not, you know, walls to protect our own in, innate goodness, too. Right. And sometimes if you think about this, like, you know, boundaries could be, you know, a certain, like, arm's length, certain bubble to enwrap you so that you can uh, yeah. be there for with for that person, but they can't hurt you, too. Right. Or the way I loved how Hanson and Mendius described this. They gave the analogy of a tree. There is a tree that's deeply embedded into the ground. And the way you should see other people's attitudes or behaviors is like the wind rustling your leaves and going through your branches. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to shake your firmly being embedded in the ground. Right. That's a beautiful. I've liked that metaphor. That's yeah. really beautiful. That one really makes sense to me. Yeah. You know, like, how are you going to make sure you're firmly embedded in the ground? So, but there, that relies on groundedness, which relies on accurate self-care. And I think that when you're in the helping professions and compassion fatigue is a, is a real thing. And it's um, partly because the boundary gets reached so much and the person who is trying to maintain the binary either gets worn down or is uncomfortable saying no, or doesn't know how to ha- set the compassionate boundary. And the structures that we've created for just the treatment of the delivery of medical care really limit that in certain ways too. Exactly. Or even the way society talks sometimes when they discuss self-care, it's like 
going to the spa like once every, I don't know, six right, months, exactly, right? right. Yeah. But it needs to happen every single day. Every single day. Even taking a shower mm-hmm. and thinking of it as like cleansing what you've you know experienced that day, renewal. Yeah. Right. That could be self-care. You don't always have to close your eyes for a meditation, but if you can, great. But Well, and it's also it's something as simple as the rituals we have for leaving and coming home. Yes. And so many people like, you know, run out of the house screaming at the kids to make their lunches and um and then come home and, you know, belt back a, you know, a martini or whatever it is. <laughs> and uh which could be a good way of re-entering, but you need to almost go into an airlock when you get home. So that you can be in your family life, not in your the stress of your workday. Or what your uh, profound 11-year-old neighbor said, going into your safe place. Yeah. And if you go into your safe place and you know what that is, how, you know, how does one come out of it? I would imagine that they feel much better knowing that they went in and came out. Well, because they, they have a, a way of tapping into that energy. Yes. Yeah. And the imagination, of course, really feeds that. But what can you imagine? You know, what we can imagine, actually, we can make happen. Do you really think so? Uh, Oh, yeah. I think imagination is the uh, first step in creating anything. How beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to the prophets and ancient um, Hebrew prophets. That you have to be able to imagine a future to move towards it. I feel like sometimes we don't imagine enough anymore. Mm Mm-mm. I, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, imagining your future. Mm-hmm. Where are you going towards? Right. Or even imagining when you come home. You know, like I am so aggravated. <laughs> like, let's imagine that I go home and pick up my kids and give them a hug first, and then I can download all that. By that time you've given your kids a hug, you don't want to. You don't need to download it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, not to take away from what mm-hmm. you're saying, but of course, anything we create, we have to be able to imagine. Imagining our future, but not making it so rigid. Like imagination comes from uh, the free self. You were talking about the solid self. That, I, that was uh, earlier when we were talking about um, that grounded self. And then that'll be your imagination and not someone else's imagination for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess for imagining, imagining the future is something, but I loved how you said even imagining when you're in that moment. Yeah. Like if you're mad, maybe you should wait 20 minutes before you go inside the house. Right. You know, like how many of us send an angry email and then 30 minutes later, we're like, oh crap, what did I do? Right. Just wait. Or if you feel that urge for the drink, Mm -hmm. what would happen if you waited 30 minutes? You know, you ate something and drank water. Mm-hmm. What would happen? Right. If you took care of an actual physical need. Right. Exactly. Or if you, even after all that, decided to have your drink, then you would actually would enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know, your favorite vintage or what have you. Yeah. Not that I'm promoting drinking, but. <laughs> <laughs> like being more in the moment. Yes. With many things present. in life. Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh my gosh, Dr. Farnbach, it's always such an honor and joy to talk with you. I feel like I've be- become a better person talking with you. Well, I feel the same way. <laughs> Let's, we'll do it again. <laughs> yes, we will. And we'll become so good. Thank you. You're welcome. 
See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and write us a great review. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.